teaching his people what it is to be his people, who he is, and what that means for us. And we kept talking about how we were getting glimpses of something that was coming, right? That Exodus was pointing us forward to something. And in the whole month of April, here we are going through Colossians. We're saying, guys, this is it. This is, this is Christ. This is Jesus. This is it. I mean, this is one of the most Christological books in the New Testament where Paul over and over and over again is like, this is Jesus. This is who he is. This is what this means for you. So guys, I felt like that is totally appropriate for us to get to continue on this Sunday in this journey walking through Colossians as Paul again and again and again. I mean, he's, he's been preparing us for this day, whether we realized it or not. The past few weeks, he's, he's getting us ready. And guys, here, all the pieces are starting to come together, okay? Here we go. Next week, we're going to be getting a little bit more specific in some of the relationships and things that change as a result of what we've been talking about the past three weeks of who Jesus is and what that means for us. But, but here, Paul, on full display, guys, showing us today, Christ is the standard for our righteousness, that there's a lot of things that Jesus is and a lot of things he does for us. But here on Easter Sunday, what we are remembering together, Christ is our righteousness. He, he has made it possible. It is him himself. He, he is our righteousness. Therefore, because there's always a good therefore, therefore, we make our life in Christ's resurrection. The first week when we were in Colossians, John was preaching on how Jesus has set us free, Right? This is something we, we celebrate as Easter. We've been set free from our sin. John shared in chapter 1, 14 and 13, we've been removed from the domain of darkness and transferred to a new kingdom, right? We, we don't have that life anymore because here we are now in Christ. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is the knowledge of God's mystery. Very simply, if we want to know who God is, look at Christ. If you want to know how God would respond, if we want to know what God thinks, who God is, Christ. He is the knowledge of God's mystery. And, and John, the first week, me last week, we're going to hear it again this week. What we do then with this, guys, we put our lives in Christ. So it, it may sound almost like a familiar sermon that you're like, Jordan, you and John are basically teaching the same thing three weeks in, three weeks out. And that's not necessarily a bad thing when we are realizing, man, if this is who Jesus is, guys, we need this. We need this. So let's open up to Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. We're going to read all of uh, chapter 2 there and then into chapter 3 to verse 17, beginning Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions or puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and its ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Hear that. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value 
in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, church today, if we are in Christ, we have been raised with him, what we are celebrating. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, there is not circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, we are grateful for the time that we have gotten to spend as a church family for four or five months now, really just looking at who are you, and what does it mean to be your people? God, may we be content with that this morning, that you are our God and we are your people, and that to know you is enough, Lord. God, we have been, we've been seeing this. We've been watching the story of the Israelites start to learn this and wrestle with it. Lord, we, we see Paul continuing to teach it to the New Testament churches because they are still wrestling with it. Father, we, we do not want to claim any ignorance this morning. God, we still wrestle with this today. So, Father, as we walk through your word as we have sung your praises, Father, as we continue to sing your praises, as we get to fellowship with one another, even as we go from this place, Father, may you continually be renewing our hearts and our minds to understand more of who you are, God, and more of what that means for us, your people who've been called to bear your image. Father, we love you, and it is in your holy name we pray. Amen. So as Paul begins this little section here in 2.16, you notice the word, therefore, uh, and I was talking with Carol about this this week, and she quoted the phrase many of you may be familiar with. You have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And Paul is building off of what we talked about last week. Immediately, right there in chapter 2, the, the heading in my Bible, Alive in Christ, it just points to what Paul has been teaching the people is that we are indeed alive 
in Christ. We've been called to establish our lives in him, not to be taken captive by the philosophy or deceit, as we talked about last week. And we had been saying how this church, uh, the believers in Colossians were struggling with this early heresy called Gnosticism, that there was some knowledge that they needed to have in addition to Christ in order to be right with God. Paul says, don't, don't mess with that. You have Christ, you have enough. And so in verse 16, he says, Therefore, because you have Christ, because you have enough, because you're alive in Christ, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or in drink. And what Paul is doing as he's going to move through the, the rest of chapter 2 here is he is establishing if Christ is alive and Christ is in you and he is enough, then Christ is our standard for righteousness. And he's going to show how this church has been really bombarded on both sides with people telling them they needed a different measuring stick in order to tell them what was righteous, in order to tell them what, was, what would actually lead them to be with God. So in verse 16 and 17, he, when he's questioning this, this food or drink, and he's saying, don't let people pass judgment on you for this, or with regard to a new festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath, he's implying that there was one group that was judging these believers based off of the Jewish law. Right? They were looking at the church and they were saying, okay, you have Jesus, and Jesus is good, but if you really want to be right with God, if you really want to be bearing his image, you need something else. And to them, this, this group in particular that Paul is writing against was saying, you needed to be holding to all the traditions, all the, the food regulations, the drink regulations. He's, he's referring to the law. And I love what Paul says in verse 17 where he, he doesn't throw out the law entirely, but notice what he says about it, church. He says these, the law, all of these restrictions that had been handed down to the people, some of them from the law, some of them man-made by the Pharisees, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Now, this is where it would be really cool if we if we could understand the ancient Greek language, because it, it makes it sound like Paul's shadow and substance are interesting words. If, if we spoke Greek, we would understand Paul is making a play on words here. Paul is saying the law is skia, which is a noun just meaning an image cast by an object and representing the form of an object. He says, but Christ is the substance, soma, meaning the body or the object itself. So Paul is saying the law was, was like if you shined a light behind something and you saw the outline of it, the law is that outline, right? It looks like something. It's pointing you towards something. It's giving you an indication that something is coming, but it's not the object itself. He says the object, the substance, is Christ. And right there we, we start to see Paul is is encouraging believers not to measure themselves by righteousness of the shadow. Look at the body right there. They, they don't need that. They have Christ. Christ is our standard for righteousness. In verses 18 and 19, Paul then goes to the other side. He says, don't let anybody disqualify you because they're claiming to have some special knowledge or some like spiritual experience that you don't have. Or they're saying, like, yeah, you have Jesus, but you really if you really understood this part of culture over here, or if you really knew this about God and how he would have you work now, now you would really be able to bear his image. Paul says, don't let them disqualify you. Don't mess with this, verse 18. He says in verse 19, these, this knowledge, this experiences that they're claiming and holding to, in reality, they are, they are as of nothing in verse 19 because he says, 
they are not leading you to hold fast to the head, right? That because it's trying to add something to Christ or say like, yes, have Christ, but you also need to have blank. He's saying that that also need to have blank is not a holding to Christ. So he says, as a result, there is no growth that is from God in them. Essentially, they're not gaining anything, even as they believe they are gaining something. Paul is, again, warning believers against measuring righteousness according to the spiritual experience or, man, how, how much knowledge about something do I, I think I have or need in order to be made right with God? Again, you have Christ. You have enough. Verses 20 through 23, now Paul kind of looks at both of them together and he says, so here, guys, here's why this is, this is so dangerous, a trap for us to fall into in 20. He says, if in Christ you have already died to the world, and these things he, Paul is relating to is more of the world, so if you've already died to that, why are you going back to it? As John pointed out when we were looking at Colossians 1, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. If we are in a new kingdom, Paul says, then why are we living as if we're still under the old kingdom? He's, he's trying to show his audience, guys, it doesn't make any sense to go back and to live that way once you are now in Christ. Essentially, what Paul is is doing, if you had to put both groups either clinging to the law or clinging to the spiritual wisdom, if you had to put it into one umbrella, he would he'd put it in his legalism. It's basically saying, if, if I'm adding something to Christ, if I do something, I should expect an outcome, right? There is the group saying, okay, you have Christ, but if you follow all this stuff with the law, then you should be even more right with God. The other group was saying, no, if you, you have Christ, but if you have the spiritual knowledge, spiritual wisdom, then you will be even more right with God. And Paul says this, this is not supposed to be taking place with Christ. Right? In verse, in verse 23, he, he, he points out that, guys, this, this is our tendency. That, that we do all, in some form or fashion, tend towards some legalistic tendencies. He says, because it has the appearance of wisdom. It makes us look like we're getting something, right? It makes it look like we're growing in something, so we go after it. Paul says it has the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. It makes us look like we're doing something, right? It's an outward expression, like, I have this and you don't, or look at all these things that I'm doing to show just how righteous I am. He says, look, they have the appearance, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It can't lead you to be right with God. It cannot undo what sin has done. It can't even pardon what sin has done. In reality, it doesn't do what we hope it does. Guys, why this matters for us this morning that Christ is our standard of righteousness, I, I think there's, there's a, couple, a couple things in here, but first off being, this is our tendency. Right? Paul would not be writing this to a body of believers if they weren't all wrestling with this at the same time. I, it is important for us to recognize that we, we have some legalistic tendencies. But honestly, we do this because it's a very simplistic way of looking at things. Um, Abigail can tell you one of the first things I do when I wake up in the morning is I, I try to write out whatever prayers I have for the day in a journal. 
And on the days that I don't, it just the day just doesn't seem to feel like it goes as well. Now, part of me would like to believe that's because I didn't set aside the time for the spirit within me to be right with the Father. But I would be lying to you if I didn't say there's another part of me that goes, well, when I spend time in prayer, then I feel like I'm more in the spirit throughout the day. So if I don't do this, now I'm in trouble, right? As if I'm not with the whole, like I have less of the Holy Spirit within me because I didn't spend time in prayer. It's, it sounds childish almost to say it out loud, but this, this is how many of us, you know, tend to walk through our, our life of faith. And it's, it's when I realized, I was like, man, I didn't even realize in trying to do something well, I still have a tendency to be very legalistic, like cause and effect in the way that I process my faith. We, we pray for things to happen. We expect it to happen. We go to church. We kind of expect to be given everything that we need from Sunday morning, which <laughs> puts a lot of expectation on me, doesn't it? We spend time in the word. We expect to be edified and to be told exactly what to do in, in every matter. And I think as, as Paul is writing against this, he's, he's really directing his audience to say, look at the fruit of where such a mind will lead you, right? What happens when we don't get what we expect, right? We tend to be angry with God because, God, I did this, so where's you holding up your end of the bargain? We tend to be angry with others when, like, I worked really hard and I feel like God blessed me, and then I see him give the same blessing to somebody else that did absolutely nothing that I did, right? It becomes a a jealousy, a comparison game, like, God, how could you bless them when they're not even paying attention to you, and I spent all this time, all this work, it's, it leads us to be upset with others, and then even, even when we do get what we expend, I, I, what I've kind of noticed from my experience in church, and I'm sure what Paul is thinking is he's directing his audience to this, when we get what we want, we just then go back and repeat the same thing over and over again, because we want the same results, Right? So we end up long-term idolizing a, a program or a process. or it, We want that instead of Christ because we like the results that we end up getting. Paul is saying, look, don't, don't let someone mislead you on whatever form of legalism is the flavor of the day or the one that you're susceptible to. He says it, it, is, it is the shadow is not the substance. It has the appearance of wisdom, but it is of no value when it comes to righteousness. A standard of righteousness other than Christ ultimately sets us up as the righteous ones, right? God, why didn't you bless me with this? God, I've been doing this correct. Where's your end of the bargain? God, how could you do that when I've been working so hard for this? Okay, God, thank you. Uh, you answered my prayer. I'll just be able to keep repeating this so I can keep getting the same results. No. <laughs> if it leads us to be angry with others and to be angry with God, to, does that sound like the fruit of the Spirit to us? This is not where Paul is going. And ultimately, what he has been saying all throughout this letter, guys, is there is no righteousness apart from Christ. I do want to be very careful. I think Paul is very clearly intentional in the way he's wording. He's not, he's not calling the law something evil. He's not saying it had no purpose or that the whole thing should have just been thrown out a long time ago. He's also really not calling out the Gnostics as saying what they are doing and trying to strive 
for a spiritual experience with God. He's saying it's, it's, he's not directly calling that out as evil. And I think what, what Paul is thinking, I mean, if, if we can, it's very difficult for us to do, but if we can put ourselves in the audience of the Colossian church, they were taught to follow Christ. Most of them probably hadn't met Christ. Christ had passed on anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30 years before this letter was written. So they're trying to figure out, so what does it look like to follow Jesus? And they're going back to what they know. What they see in culture is, oh, I need to get the special knowledge. What they see from th those who had a Jewish background was, I need to follow the law. They're, they're not quite sure of what this looks like. I think Paul is very gracious. He's not condemning either of them, but he's putting it in its place. He's saying it's not that this is so much an evil thing or a wicked thing, but it's not doing what you believe it does. He says this, this, the, our legalistic tendencies is just a shadow of something to come, right? It's not, it's not the body. Paul is essentially telling them, don't chase the shadow when the body is right here. Guys, and this, this is my prayer for our church and, and for just Christians in general today. Man, we spend, we spend a lot of time chasing the shadow, right? Because the shadow looks good. I mean, I, I keep coming back to verse 23. It, it gives us the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. It looks, it looks so good, right? And it feels like that's something we should want. We should want to make our lives. We should want to make our world look more like the shadow of God, right? We want things to look more like God. But Paul says, look, to do that, you don't chase the shadow. You chase the body. You have the body of Christ within you. He's not condemning the shadow as evil, but he's saying, look, to pursue, to make something bear the shadow of Christ is not the same thing as pursuing Christ itself. And he says, when you're, when you're pursuing or if you're leading someone to pursue the shadow of Christ and making something just look more like Christ, he says, not only does it not save you, it also doesn't save them. And it makes people feel disqualified. Like it's adding something to the gospel that I understand the gospel, but you're also telling me I need this. It, it, this is why Paul uses the language. Don't be disqualified. Don't let somebody pass judgment on you for something that God is not actively passing judgment here on. Guys, come back to verse 17. The substance belongs to Christ. So what we do with this, this is where Paul starts to go in the rest of the letter. So Jesus Christ is the standard of our righteousness. He, he is what righteousness looks like. He is himself our righteousness. For us to be right with God, we need Christ. So what, what does this look like? Paul begins in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Okay, Paul, thank you. Please tell me what this looks like. Very first thing Paul says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. As we continue through chapter 3, there's it's almost like a set of couplets where Paul kind of tells his audience to do something and then he gives the reasoning behind it. There's three little couplets of, hey guys, do this because of this. Do this because of this. And all of these together really just show how the other half of our main point, we were made to make our life in Christ's resurrection, right? What we do because Jesus is our standard for righteousness, we make our life in Christ's resurrection. 
So the first thing he's telling his audience to do, seek the things that are above. Verse 2, second command, set your minds on things that are above. And then the reasoning behind this, why? Verse 3, verse 4, for you have died. You've died. And your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 4, Christ, who is your life? I have a really hard time wrapping my head around this church, and I imagine you guys might as well. But what Paul has been building to this letter and claiming Christ as our righteousness is saying, when you have put your life in Christ, that former life does not exist. Your life is hidden with Christ. That life has been put to death, which is, which is why Paul says, don't go back to something that is dead. He says, this life that you have with, with Christ, your life is hidden with Christ. That the, Now my life is actually Christ's life within me. There is, there is no form of the past. He says, when we declare Jesus as Lord, we are surrendering our lives to him. And we, we think about waving like a, uh, like a white flag as far as surrender goes where something takes us over, but we you know, kind of still retain who we are. And Paul's really saying, you have died, and the life of Christ is now your own. We are making our life in Christ's resurrection. Verse 5, Paul exhorts us to, again, put to death what is earthly in you. Right. So if Christ is our life, we're supposed to get rid of whatever is not Christ in our lives, which, as Paul is saying, is pretty much everything before Christ. Why? On verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And this, you know, the wrath of God is something that we don't typically talk about much in church, but it shouldn't surprise us that if God is establishing our life in Christ, because to live in Christ is to be with God, then something that's not of Christ is not going to let us be right with God. And God desires us to be with him. He describes himself as a jealous God, that he desires us to be with him. So it would make sense that God would be angry at the things that are keeping us from him. So he says, put it to death, because these things really make me mad. Verse 7, he tells his audience, you used to live this way, right? We, we used to, whether we knew or didn't know, we used to live in, in a manner that was not right with God. And then, and then, what has Christ done? No, oh, he has delivered us from one kingdom into the other. He has brought us back such that in verse 10, we have now put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. Guys, I, I have been really struck, especially, I mean, going all the way back to August as we've been walking through the vision season and talking about man, what, what does it look like for us to be with God, for us to be his people? The language of his image in scripture, right? That, that one of the most often phrases associated with what life with God looks like is bearing his image, which is something else that's difficult to wrap one's head around. But it is also very freeing because God says, and it makes sense if we think about we're taking Christ's life as our own, that he has put to death our former nature. He has placed his new life inside of us. And if we have the life of Christ inside of us, it should make sense. We are growing to bear Christ 
in all things. So if we have been raised to life with Christ, where Paul begins in verse 1, then our lives are becoming more and more like Christ. We are making our life in the resurrection of Christ. And to further nail this down in verse 11, Paul says, look, there's a lot of different things we used to use to identify ourselves. There's a lot of different images we used to bear. He says, not, not anymore, because Christ is all and Christ is in all. The last couplet, verse, verses 12 through 17, the, the last half of verse 12 and you know, all the way through verse 17 is this long list of Paul describing, okay, so here's what the image of God looks like. He says it's an image of holiness, compassion, love, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, peace, thankfulness. This might sound familiar, right? How many of you are thinking of the fruits of the Spirit at this point? That's something else Paul wrote about in Galatians. It's, it's a consistent theme in his letters what the image of God looks like. Further, he talks about being rooted in God's word, letting it dwell within you, letting it teach you, letting it throw from you to teach others. And why do we do this? He starts in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. You have the life of Christ inside of you, he says to his audience. So live as Christ would live. Make the life of Christ your own. He's trying to paint an entire picture of you have what you need in Christ. Christ is enough. So walk in Christ. Guys, this is what we are remembering and what we are celebrating on Easter Sunday in the resurrection. In Christ's life, he showed us the example of what the image of God looks like. In his death, he wiped our slate clean so that we could receive a new life. But it is in Christ's resurrection that we receive this new life. You know, and, and I think we, we like to focus on Jesus' life because we like to know, okay, God, what would you do in this situation? So we go see what Jesus did. And some, you know, sometimes we kind of elevate that above the other two. Sometimes we do that with Christ's death, right? We like the reassurance that, yeah, our sweet has been liked clean. We, we are made right. Our sins have been forgiven. Amen. But we forget that there's also the resurrection, that when he rose from the grave, guys, he, did, he overcame death. So when it says that we have died, we are able to receive a new life. That life has been put within you in the Holy Spirit, and it is the life of Christ. Guys, this is this is amazing, and it, it made me think back to Exodus, which we'll, we'll get to in May. Okay, don't worry, we're, we're not done with Exodus yet. But you watch the people of Israel, and they're, they're watching God do miracles right there in front of them. And then the very next day, they are totally forgetting everything. And you go, how, how could you guys keep missing this? And I was talking about this with Abigail this week, and she said, well, Jordan, Christ had not been resurrected yet. God had been right there next to them. God had been right there showing them, but God had not yet put his life within them. They literally did not have anything to keep them grounded within them to the image of Christ. Guys, if you have given your life to Christ today, you have this within you. This is what we are celebrating on Easter Sunday, that his resurrection, his life dwells within us. I think about the disciples. Man, you see the exact same picture, how they lived with Jesus and heard his teaching and watched him do countless miracles for three years. 
as we talked about on Good Friday, when everything starts to fall into place, every single one of them leaves, except for Peter, who follows at a distance and then denies him and also ends up leaving, right? How could they have not understood? Well, they did not have the life of Christ within them yet. What changes at the resurrection is everything. It is after this, after Christ is raised, that he reminds his followers of who he is and what he's done. He reminds them that he will send the helper. And then he leaves. And at the beginning of Acts, you see the Holy Spirit have come. Now the life of Christ has been placed within his followers. Church, if you are a follower of Christ today, that life dwells within you, okay? Please hear me. You, you do not need to add to that. There's nothing that we can add to that that is of any value of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So therefore, what we are called to do is to build our life in this resurrection. So as we respond today, guys, just you've, man, as we're reading through Colossians, as we're thinking back to Exodus, we, we are seeing a picture of the gospel on full display, right? We are being reminded that we have been broken apart from God, that there's just something not inherently right within us. We've been reminded that, hey, Christ is our righteousness. <laughs> and, and on Easter weekend, we celebrate all that God has done for us in Christ and making our, that righteousness available to us. And so guys, as we respond, I want to encourage you a couple different ways today. One way you can respond is I, I would say let, let's define our life by faith. Let's say, you know what? I do want to die to this. I, I, I don't want that former life anymore. I want this life of Christ within me. If this is you, then let's, let's come talk about this after the service. If you've made that decision, but you've never proclaimed it to everybody, then let's come talk about baptism after the service. The, the, the external sign of the internal work, right? That let's, let's come proclaim this. This is something we get to celebrate, church. This is the most joyful occasion. And maybe I would throw this out for you guys to respond to. If you have this life, it is very tough to grow in it on our own. And so I would encourage you, look, here at New River Fellowship, come, come grow with us. Man, we, we are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but man, do we want to know Christ. We want to make him known. We know that that starts within us. We, we are on a journey together getting to learn this. And so if, if you do not have a church family, if you have one and would like to come here, I, I would encourage you, let's come talk about, about membership, okay? We want to grow with you in this life, this life with Christ. So as you consider how to respond, guys, please join with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, I am blind. Be thou my light. I am ignorant. Be thou my wisdom. I am self-willed. Be thou my mind. Open my ear to grasp quickly thy spirit's voice and delightfully run after his beckoning hand. Melt my conscience that no hardness remain. Make it alive to evil's slightest touch. When Satan approaches, may I flee to thy wounds and there cease to tremble at all alarms. Be my good shepherd to lead me into the green pastures of thy word and cause me to lie down beside the rivers of its comforts. 
Fill me with peace that no disquieting worldly gales may ruffle the calm surface of my soul. The cross was upraised to be my refuge. Thy blood streamed forth to wash me clean. Thy death occurred to give me a surety. Thy name is my property to save me. By thee all heaven is poured into my heart. But my heart is too narrow to comprehend thy love. I was a stranger. I was an outcast. I was a slave. I was a rebel. But thy cross has brought me near. Thy cross has softened my heart. Thy cross has made me thy father's child. Thy cross has admitted me to thy family. Thy cross has made me joint heir with thyself. Oh, that I may love thee as thou lovest me, Jesus. That I may walk worthy of thee, my Lord. That I may reflect the image of heaven's firstborn. May I always see thy beauty with clear eye of faith. And feel the power of thy spirit in my heart. For unless he moves mightily in me, no inward fire will be kindled. Amen.